Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. You're listening to Backstory on Triple R. My name's Elsie Lange, filling in for Mel Cranenberg, and I'm now going to play you a chat I had with award winning writer of Burial Rights and the Good People, Hannah Kent, about her lush new novel, Devotion, a story of the power of love, of queerness, of nature, of ghosts, religion, and land. Also a couple of little notes before I press play. About three quarters of the way through the interview, one of Hannah's kids comes in and reads next to her while she chats. So you might hear a few background page turning and the Zoom audio cuts out a bit. So if you hear a sentence cut short, that's that's the problem. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for chatting with me on Backstory, Hannah. Thank you so much for having me, Elsie. It's a pleasure. I loved this book. I didn't quite know what to expect. Without giving too much away, can you tell us the story of Devotion? Yeah, sure. Uh, Devotion uh, really is the story of a girl and then a woman called Hannah Nussbaum, who at the novel's opening is the daughter of an old Lutheran elder. She belongs to a congregation of dissenters in Prussia in the village of Kay, who at the time of the novel's opening had been persecuted by the Prussian king who wants to unite all Protestant churches under the umbrella of his union church. And they refuse to do so. So their church has been locked, the bell has been stolen and their religious services have been pushed into the forest at nights. But while all of this is happening in the distance, Hannah really is much more concerned with growing up. She's uh, someone who enjoyed a childhood of relative freedom. Uh, She is a nature's child. She has always loved to be outside, mainly because she experiences a curious kind of synesthesia where she hears the landscape talking to her. She hears trees singing to her and she likes to commune with the weather and with nature in the most literal sense. But as the time, as the family's persecution has increased and intensified, so has her obligation and duty to her family to start to prepare for the really the only societal role allowed for her in this community, which is that of a dutiful mother and wife. And Hannah resents this. She's also incredibly lonely. She has a twin, Matthias, who understands her and loves her for who she is. But she's quite alone amongst her peer group. She's not well accepted. And then shortly after the novel begins, she meets Taya, who is the daughter of new arrivals to this village of dissenters, who recognises something in Hannah. And together, these two girls form a very deep and beautiful friendship, which over time, as the congregation starts to seek opportunities for religious freedom through emigration, deepens into something much, much stronger. Yeah, it's a a beautiful, I love... um how the friendship sort of evolves into that really deep love, that forbidden love. I read in The Guardian that you were inspired to write Devotion after the 2017 marriage plebiscite, which coincidentally happened about four years ago on the 15th of November. Can you talk to me more about this? 
I didn't realize it was the anniversary. How funny. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, it was interesting because I knew that I wanted to sort of step onto new ground for this novel. I had written two previous books that were very strongly based on uh, real criminal trials from the past, one in Iceland with burial rights and one in Ireland with the good people. And those books were books I'm glad I've written um, and ones I felt I needed to write, but they were dark and they were heavy and it was a heavy process writing them. And I knew that with this book, I wanted to do something a little bit different. I wanted to move into something which was a little bit more celebratory, which honoured something, I guess, from the past. Um, And so initially I was really curious about um, the German immigration or the Prussian immigration to colonial South Australia in the first part of the 19th century, mainly because I live really close to a place called Handorf and um, on on Paramount country here in the Adelaide Hills, uh, which was... uh, created on on a place otherwise known as Bacatilla um, in the the late 1830s. And I was always struck by the women who took very much a role in the background when the sort of the narrative of this place would ever take place in kind of like a public forum. Um, I was really intrigued as to what it would have been like to have been a woman in this kind of closed community what it would have been like to leave your village in Prussia and sail for six months to a place you couldn't even conceive of. Um, And so initially I thought, well, maybe I can combine these two interests and I can step into the light, so to speak, and write about the friendships that would have existed surely between these women. And this was sort of my early thinking around the novel as I started reading and researching. And then, yeah, 2017 happened and... I sort of asked myself, you know, as all these conversations are happening and these arguments are happening in the public arena, you know, I've always been so interested in what is missing in a historical narrative. What is silent? What is unsaid? What aspect of the story isn't told? And I was thinking about the relationships between women and the friendships between women. And I was thinking there is so, there are so few relationships which Uh, queer or same sex which are recorded in the historical past certainly by those who experience them and I could never find anything within a sort of a religious community like the one I'd started researching and I was also very much personally invested in in the in the in the marriage plebiscite because I had a girlfriend we were hoping to get married and I have was we were sort of having conversations like what would have happened had we met you know hundreds of years ago you know, we probably would have been married, maybe, if that was the societal norm, if that was sort of the way that we had to exist within society. Would we have recognised the love that we would have had for one another? Would we have been clear-eyed about that? And I started asking all these sorts of questions at the same time. And then my girlfriend proposed to me when Australia voted yes. And I accepted, clearly, she's my wife now. And I think those things together made me think, this novel needs to be more than friendship. It needs to be addressing those very resounding, those resounding silences within history. And I thought to myself, why am I selling myself short here? Why am I not writing the book that I would want to read, which is a story of queer love between two women? And that was really the decision that I guess brought the the heartbeat into the project. And from that, from that point onwards, everything started to fall into place. It's beautiful to hear that because reading it, it's quite affirming and I think a lot of people are going to feel that too. Hannah, devotion, like you said, is quite different to your previous historical novels because it's, well, it's more magical. 
it's not tied so closely to history but still centres on the outsider woman, Hannah Nussbaum. She's a girl connected to nature more than other people. Why do you write these complex women? I think I tend to write about outsiders because I am so interested in the way in which what seems to be different about them actually speaks to the communities who state that difference. So by that, what I mean is I'm interested in the ways in which, for instance, in my first novel, Agnes Bagnastotti, my character, was perceived as different because everyone spoke of her intelligence, but her intelligence is something to be feared because she was essentially a very poor landless servant. And I was therefore really intrigued in the way in which um, people seem to think that intelligence in a person of such a low social station was something to be feared. I thought that spoke a lot to, I guess, the preoccupations of her community. And with my second novel, there was a character called Nance Roach, who was an elderly woman who called herself a fairy doctor. And these sorts of people, fairy doctors, exist. In fact, they still exist in Ireland today. And some people uh, laugh at them. Some people are ignorant of them. Some people fear them and some revere them. And I think all those different attitudes can say something about the preoccupations of a particular time or place, um, the social mores, all of these sorts of things. And similarly with Hannah Nussbaum, I was really intrigued. I was I wanted to write a character who didn't fit in to the religious community that she belonged to, even though ostensibly she did everything right. I was interested in having a character who was self-aware about her difference, not only for the community and what it would say about the congregation, but also because I was interested in writing about the power of finally being recognised and accepted for who you are even if you you consider yourself to be less than by someone else and the sort of profound love that can result from that kind of total recognition. So once I had decided that I was going to write a love story, I, I kind of knew intuitively that the main character would feel herself to be an outsider so that when she finally receives this kind of unconditional acceptance, this um, it would it would mean so much to her. There would be so much meaning in finding someone else who truly sees her and truly accepts her for for who she is when so many other people who ostensibly love her, like her family, do not. I think that's one of the reasons. I think um, probably, you know, speaking personally, I think I've always identified with The Outsider. You know, I was that weird little kid who got the stationery show bag from the royal show and <laughs> read too many books and kind of decided that she would create her own newspaper when all her peers are like, you know, trying cigarettes for the first time. You know, I was I was that person. And so I think it's easy for me to adopt kind of the perspective of an outsider because I really feel like I've lived most of my life basically being one, whether or not that's true, but that's how I sort of see myself. Oh, well, I think it's the benefit of that distance which makes your writing so beautiful. Um, I, I think also when some of the old Lutheran congregation becomes suspicious of Taya's mother for her practising of homeopathy as well as the use of the parts of the Bible that were forbidden, I, my mind was cast back to the suspicion of um, the main character in The Good People um, and of fairies and changelings. Yeah, so what, was there an interest in that sort of religious anxiety as well there of about natural practices or even pagan practices? Yeah, absolutely. And to one to a certain extent, I didn't really have to find it because it's there in so much of the resource material that I was reading. I was kind of, um, you're always expecting kind of 
hints of superstitions, whether it's just things that you find in proverbs or sort of allusions to herbal remedies and things, um, especially when you're looking at a society or, or a group of people who don't have ready access to doctors or sort of formal medicine in the historic past, you always sort of, you come across it quite frequently. But what I found researching this book was just a ton of information about um, you know, letters, local stories, um, diary entries, accounts from pastors about uh, essentially mm. witchcraft or occult practices, even by those who belong to very pious communities. Um, there was a lot of suspicion of people who were known as Vendish, now known as Sorbs, because they were known to be superstitious and they were known to sort of access a grimoire of the time called the Sixth and Seventh Books of Moses, which was sort of thought to be uh, an apocryphal sort of text and I just kept finding this stuff and even when I was looking at these sort of German communities in South Australia I kept encountering stories of people wearing red ribbons around their necks when they passed certain houses in the street accounts of people um, you know being discovered of milking rope ends to try and procure milk in a supernatural way um, you know aprons turning into birds I just kept finding this stuff and then I found the actual apocryphal text and started translating it from German and it's just you know as a novelist you're just always on the, on the hunt for something kind of juicy like that and I just found so much so much information relating to witchcraft and the supernatural and this and superstitions that I thought oh, you know actually not including this will, will actually you know will be a disservice to this part of history it would actually be a complete omission rather than an inclusion so I was really excited to come up with the character of Anna Maria Taya's mother who is Vendish and who accesses this grimoire and sort of has a a slightly different approach to life and an understanding of life and humanity than than the rest of the congregation who end up emigrating. She does seem to see more than others. Um, yeah, in the research you did in writing devotion, maybe compared to the process in writing your previous works, although it sounds like you know German as well, and I know you learnt Icelandic for writing burial rites, and I'm not sure if you learnt Gaelic, but I'm sure you did. Um, <laughs> Am I right in thinking a lot of the research was centred around the diary kept by um, Dirk Hahn, the captain of the migrant ship, after whom Handorf in Adelaide Hills was named? Yes, that's absolutely true. Although, first of all, I should say you do me, you, you, you were far too kind. Um, I, I, already, I already spoke Icelandic when the time came to write burial rights, so that was made a lot easier. I did not learn Gaelic and I speak very, very little German and rely heavily on Google Translate. So, you know, let's not, let's not pretend I'm more skilled than I am. I would love to take credit for all of that, but no, no, sadly no. So it's a much more laborious and, you know, faulty process than that. Um, but but um, that said, yes, I did rely on a translated version of, of uh, Captain Dirk Hahn's uh, ship journal, which he published um, after he sailed the zebra from Hamburg uh, all the way down to Port Adelaide or Port Miserius, as, as it was known. And the reason why is because I was I knew that a ship journey would be part of the book. And um, I didn't really, I mean, I don't know what it's like to stay for six months in between decks on a three-masted ship. And I was sort of hoping to kind of glean some details so that I could visualise it for myself and hopefully allow the reader to. 
And I was reading this account, which, you know, on surface level was incredibly dry. This was a captain who was reluctant to take this bunch of emigrants. He was much more concerned with this chronometer, which he'd ordered, which is a maritime instrument, which seemed to be faulty, you know, pages about this chronometer. And I remember I was in the State Library of South Australia just reading, thinking, uh-huh, okay, I just want these more little details. And occasionally there would be some, you know, he mentioned that the emigrants would sing mornings and night and had beautiful voices. I'm like, okay, that's good. That's a detail I can use. But then I got to the end of the journals and there he sort of stops and he says, I have actually not been entirely truthful in my accounts of the emigrants um, and I feel like I, I feel obliged to actually give a much more truthful and honest account of all these things which happened. And then he basically goes on to list an absolute litany of petty grievances, of arguments, of fights that broke out, of some, some very serious stuff as well, you know, deaths which potentially occurred at the hands of what sounds like an absolutely incompetent doctor who, like, adulterated his, med- his medicines with ground glass and wanted to introduce live vaccines of smallpox on board and I was just like I remember being in the library you know my hands almost shaking just like oh I've hit the jackpot you know this is this is incredible this is the human face you know of of this of this community and it was too good not to lean on it um I had already decided that I wasn't going to use the real names of people who and of the families who ended up uh creating Handorf on Paramount Country but I mainly because, you know, I've dated descendants and things like that. There's just way too many of them still in the Adelaide Hills and I was sure to really annoy some people by getting something wrong or omitting something. So I knew I was going to fictionalise it, but I just, you know, when you've got accounts of herrings being in barrels and finally opened and all the bones have disintegrated and kind of locked onto one another, so it's just this massive rotten fish or, like, you know, the captain handing out brushes so people can scrub the mould of bread or just, oh, gosh, I could just continue. There's just so many awful things which happened, which some of them are quite funny, like people getting really, some elders getting really annoyed at the sailors holding a Neptune ceremony, which was when you used to throw water on people who hadn't crossed the equator before. You can imagine all these sort of uptight old Lutheran elders getting a bit sniffy because the sailors are throwing some buckets around to um, much more serious, much more serious and very sad things happening too. So, yeah, an incredible resource and one that I really did use a lot. I mean, it's funny because as much as this book is, you know, fictionalised to such a large degree and does sort of is a massive foray into an imagined imagined characters and imagined space and has a lot of sort of magic in it, um, there were still so many concrete historical sources and narratives that I used to, to write it. So it still is underpinned with a lot of, a lot of truths. It, it does seem that way because you, you can place almost everything that you write about somewhere, you know. Hannah, I love the Adelaide Hills. What's your familiar link to the historical aspect of this story? Were you drawn to write it because you know it? I think so, yeah, to a certain degree. Not so much the story of these German immigrants, although I am related to them. I'm not actually related to anyone who ended up settling on uh, Paramount Country at Bucatilla, now known as Handorf. Um, 
I I'm I am related to people who emigrated a little bit later than those than than when my characters do, and ended up settling in the Barossa. And you know, the Barossa has always had quite a strong presence in my family as a landscape. And it was actually an interest in the landscape of the Barossa, that sort of beautiful wine region, and also potentially you know Paramount Country, Adelaide Hills, um, that made me think maybe I can write a book set in Australia because it was something I was actively avoiding for a long time mainly because I had no desire to write about our colonial history I was never going to adopt um, the perspective of an Aboriginal character because I'm not Aboriginal I'm not First Nations I felt that that was absolutely not my place to appropriate that kind of voice and to you know try to articulate a culture I don't belong to Um, and so Really, I thought the alternative for me in, you know, potentially writing about colonial South Australia particularly would be to adopt the prejudices and perspective of why why would I try to sort of perpetuate those kind of ideologies. Um, So really it was something that I was wrestling with for a long time and it wasn't until I sort of hit upon, I guess, um, ways to creatively acknowledge um, the the devastation that colonialism caused Australia within the novel whilst at the same time not being too disruptive and, and sort of placing a modern voice in there that I that I thought okay yeah maybe this is something I can do maybe this is something that I can negotiate through creative risk. Yeah I wondered how hard that was to do because I wanted to know about the research you did into the colonial truths of Handoff where the land of the Pamarang people was divided amongst the Prussians, stolen like land all over the country was stolen. And, um, you know, who you spoke to in that place to give you some understanding of its history? Yeah, it was something that I was really aware of and I wasn't necessarily sure how to go about it because there are many sources which talk about early encounters and interactions between the Prussians and the Paramank at Bakatela, then Handorf. And... Um, and they, they speak actually of a great deal of generosity on behalf of the Paramount. In fact, there were many sources I found, particularly first-hand accounts, which mentioned the ways in which the Paramount saved the community from starvation that first winter when they hadn't yet had shelters and when their ship's rations had run out and many of them were still coping and dealing with scurvy and sort of sicknesses from the ship's journey. And um, I wanted to kind of include that, but at the same time, you're aware that all these written sources, at least the ones that I could find, are from the perspective of the Prussians. So I felt like I wasn't necessarily getting an account from the other side, so to speak. So I sort of used those sources because so many of them mentioned similar events and things. I thought of, I thought, well, I could perhaps, you know, use them and allude to those those initial friendly, using inverted commas, relations whilst at the, still, at the same time still acknowledging that the Prussians' formation of Handoff is a, is a hostile act because it's still an act of theft and all theft is hostile. It's still an act of displacement. It's still an act of uh, a decimation of resources through um, changing the landscape and, and, you know, creating wheat fields and all these sorts of things. So it was something I was really anxious about in writing the book and, to be honest, I would welcome any feedback because this is still something that I think writers writing about 
um, Australia's past need to to be aware of and improve on. In the end, I was also really helped by speaking with uh, a Paramount elder, um, the wonderful Mandy Brown, who's also a writer and a poet. And we spoke about a lot of things, but she she really um, did me a great service by making me question certain aspects of the book regarding attitudes towards the supernatural activity which is in the book without sort of stating any spoilers and um and made me yeah rewrite some some sections of it and also just change the tone of some passages of writing as well so I was really I'm I'm endlessly grateful to her um that was that was something so incredibly generous that she did for me um so so yeah but you know it's such a tricky thing to do because Sure, there are stories from that time that perhaps are worthy of being told, but how do we do it? How do we do it in a way that um, doesn't continue the the great damage of that past? How can we how can we write it in such a way to bring awareness and and understanding and compassion? Yeah, it's um beautiful to read, um, you know, about connection to country from the perspective of the Pamarank people, but also from the, you know, I won't give too much away, but from the protagonist's sort of connection to country there as well. Um, I think it also leads really beautifully into the discussion around music in this novel. Music and nature are intrinsically tied throughout the book with lines like the sky was a chorus, the trees a low and pulsing metronome, or music spilling from the leaves. Hannah even sings herself into trees. Tell me why you write music in landscape. It felt like a very natural fit. I think as soon as I sort of felt like I had Hannah's character down, that she was someone who felt completely at home with nature, not in the sense that she enjoyed it like we all do, but that she found something of the divine in it and she communed with it, made me think, okay, how, why? And I already knew that music would play a role because even though these Prussian communities, many of them, you know, refused to dance, that was seen as sinful, they did sing. And it made me think if your means of creative expression are so limited, wouldn't song just take on such importance? Wouldn't music just be a lifeline to that kind of, I don't know, that expression of the soul and of beauty? And so I started, you know, researching a lot of the hymns that were sung at the time and then it kind of flowed on in through Hannah's character where on one hand she's standing there in the forest singing these, these songs of praise with her, you know, her fellow congregation and on the other hand she's completely enraptured because she's in the forest and the, and the trees are singing too but they're singing a different song but yet it's all the same, it's all divine. I was interested in connecting, I guess, um, the very religious experience that you can have when you're in nature and you feel connected to it in that way. Um, it, yeah, it came about, it was probably one of the most organic parts of the novel in the end. It reads that way. And um, I've read before in other novels, the description of the bush as like a cathedral. Um, and I think you really portray that here. So I, I felt thankful for reading it. I'm not sure I've ever read such an arrestingly beautiful description of dying and death. The way the whale song trembles through the ship as the book's main tragedy occurs is truly magnificent to read. How did you find these words? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, you know, there's bits in the book that, um, you know, mostly I think I'm always really wary of putting writing up on this kind of 
pedestal where it's mysterious and you're just a vessel and the words come to you and it's all flow you know mostly writing for me is you know a grind right it's you know you write it down and you rewrite it and you rewrite it and you're still not happy with it and you keep writing it um but there are moments I think in in all of my books where there have been just you know things have just come to you and often they're really early on before I even really know what I'm writing about there's just a certain line or an image and I'll just get it down and it it actually sort of travels unchanged throughout all the various iterations of the story even as the characters and the plot completely alter and that was one of them that came that came really early on in the book and I'm always so grateful for those moments because they become touchstones for me in terms of voice and kind of sensibility as well. There was another one, which is the very beginning of the book, which is sort of an address in Hannah's voice to Taya. And that was, that was again, one of the first things I wrote when I was sort of circling around this ideas of, you know, what seemed to be like completely bizarre thing to write, you know, a, <laughs> a love story, a queer, a queer love story set amongst a very pious bunch of Prussian immigrants to South Australia. But what are you doing? But I would have these little pieces of writing and they were enough for me to think, oh yeah, this, this is kind of encapsulates what I'm trying to achieve. And so I could sort of return to these cornerstones throughout and think, okay, that's the voice. This is the atmosphere. And that was true of that one too. So, I mean, you know, they're just gifts when it happens because they happen so rarely, you know, it might happen. Oh God, I you know, less than five times for each book. But um yeah, that was certainly one of them. And that helped me sort of navigate a lot of the second half of the book. Well, yeah, because Hannah and Taya don't have words for what they're feeling. So what better way to express it than to sing, you know, as loudly as you can. Uh I think there's such an urgency in Hannah and Taya's teenage love that that sort of adolescent angst of losing th- something that hasn't yet eventuated or fully blossomed. It's a bit Shakespearean in its tragedy. Is there something purer about this love, full of hope and naivety? I couldn't say. I, you know, I don't know if you know you can measure love in that way on a scale of purity. I think though that there is something. Um, I think so much of their love is a willingness to surrender to it, and I think that's what I wanted to capture is that both of them, even though they they lack a vocabulary, they lack a lexicon to talk about what they're experiencing, they're sort of aware about it, you know, out of the corner of their eyes, they're sort of aware of their feelings, but they're not yet sort of grasping an adequate vocabulary to articulate what the other means to each other. And so writing it, you sort of can only really speak directly to those feelings of hope and urgency and excitement when you yeah, you don't necessarily know what's causing it but you know it's there and you know that you're willing whatever this is you're willing to sort of you know lose yourself to it and it's it's a higher power that you're you're happy to kind of surrender to I think that's what I was trying to sort of to to articulate I don't know if I really answered your question to be honest or even if I'm being articulate in this moment but yeah it was it wasn't necessarily about it being pure it was just about it containing so much meaning that it's it's going to it's a sense that this this can overwhelm your life in the best possible way if you if you let it that this can be the thing that you know gives your life its greatest meaning Absolutely. That sort of, yeah, surrendering to nature, whatever that means, whether or not it's in your body or in the landscape, it's um, it's all around this novel. What a beautiful place to wind up. 
You've been listening to Triple R. My name is Elsie Lange filling in for Mel Cranenberg. We've been chatting with Australian author Hannah Kent about her new and very gorgeous novel, Devotion. Thanks for being with us today, Hannah. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.